Uh, welcome, everyone. Hi. My name is Troy Porter, and I am the board chair for the Rothko Chapel. And on behalf of the Rothko Chapel Board of Directors and the broader chapel community, I want to welcome you to the 2023 Rothko Chapel Oscar Romero Award. This is a very important occasion and ritual in the life of the chapel that serves as the focal point of our human rights and social justice commitments. It is a pleasure to be standing here with these distinguished honorees who are the connection between the local, national, and international struggles and demonstrate the power in working in solidarity with our communities. So welcome again, and I want to turn our program over to David Leslie, who will tell you more about the Rothko Chapel and the Oscar Merrill Award. Troy, thank you very much. I want a little calendar thing that came to my mind today in talking to our colleague Kelly Johnson. Do you realize this is the first time we've been back in the chapel for the Oscar Romero Award in person since 2017? Isn't that amazing? So big hand for all who are here. Um, we have a very good, robust uh, online audience this afternoon, so welcome. And uh, it's just great to be back in the house again. One housekeeping note, I do want to say, if you would, if you have your cell phone on, if you could silence your cell phone, and please refrain from taking pictures, just that uh, we do post this on our website, so you can watch it afterwards, and it's also a very important way that we keep connected to one another and try to minimize distractions, which are hard to do, but we invite that here in the chapel. For more than 50 years, the Rothko Chapel has been a place of pilgrimage, welcoming visitors from all over the world, seeking solace, respite, and renewal within the walls of this transformative sanctuary envisioned by Jean and Dominique Demenel and designed by the artist Mark Rothko. Exemplified by Barnett Newman's broken obelisk that stands on the plaza in front of the chapel and dedicated to the living legacy of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, the chapel engages daily the social, political, religious, and economic issues that often determine where we end up in life. Central to all of our efforts is the commitment to be a safe and sacred place where voices will not be silenced even when what is communicated makes us uncomfortable, challenges the political and social norms of the day, and calls for changes of perspectives and practices that lead to a more just, caring, humane, and equitable society. So it's within this context that the chapel established and presented the first Oscar Romero Award in 1986 in honor and memory of the life and witness of the then and now Saint Oscar Romero, who was murdered in March 1980 while celebrating Mass in a Catholic hospital chapel in El Salvador, El Salvador, 
His murder, you see, was the avocation for the poor and all who had been outcast and marginalized in El Salvador in the face of intense economic, political pressure from the government. He is now known internationally and has inspired countless others to advocate for justice in their communities. The Oscar Romero Award is given to grassroots individuals or organizations working to address injustices in community with others who display a profile of courage or courageous struggle such that their vocation puts their lives, their reputations, and often their livelihoods at risk. Awardees represent diverse regions of the world, addressing a wide range of crucial and critical issues such as immigration, peace in the Middle East, mass incarceration, indigenous rights, and the impact of climate change on all of us. Today's award ceremony is the culmination of the chapel's two-year initiative, Beyond the Rhetoric, Civil Rights, and Our Shared Responsibility, focused particularly on civil rights at risk in the United States. The initiative has provided important opportunities to listen to one another and to garner insights into different understandings about the very concept of rights and how civil rights have been experienced across communities in this nation. We have engaged diverse, critical, and often interrelated issues, including LBGTQ rights, indigenous perspectives on the concepts of rights, censorship, challenges that immigrants face in court, and efforts to roll back voting rights. Our guides and our teachers include community leaders and activists representing diverse sectors, including the arts, religion, academia, and philanthropy. Now, through this two-year initiative, three distinct learnings emerged that exemplify the lives and vocational commitments of this year's awardees. First, civil and human rights should never be taken for granted, nor soon to be applied universally. Second, regardless of one's beliefs about or positions on critically, critical and emotionally charged issues, such as reproductive rights and climate change, the growing and dehumanizing level of vitriol and violence must be a concern to all of us, for this is not just a political or public safety crisis, but in fact is a spiritual existential catastrophe where a person's very worth, their meaning, and their existence is not only called into question, but is at severe risk. Third, the work to create a world where the dignity and worth of all is honored and protected is not easy and is everyone's responsibility. For as St. Oscar Romero said, peace is dynamism, peace is generosity, it is a right, and it is a duty. So it's with that we gather today to honor and express our deepest gratitude to the 2023 Oscar Romero Award honorees. The People's Paper Co-op from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, represented by Courtney Bowles and Mark Strandquist. The, <laughs> I 
I think we're going to do a lot of clapping today. <laughs> the Reverend Erica Ferguson, Principal in Vision Justice and Reproductive Justice Post Roe from Dallas, Texas. <laughs> and Seconda Joseph, co-founder and director of Smart Media and organizing with Imagine Noir, BLMTX from right here in Houston, Texas. I think there's some people in the house. What do you think? <laughs> in a few minutes, we'll hear from the honorees, but I do want to extend once more our collective gratitude for their collective vocational commitment and witness. Thank you all so much. Now putting on a program like this takes a lot of folks. I can't name them all. Many are in your program. You'll meet them today. But I do want to lift up the 2023 Award Nomination Committee, the Chapel's Program Committee. I echo Troy, the Board of Directors, my staff colleagues, and particularly uh, Kelly Johnson and Ana Martinez, who are on our program team, for their outstanding leadership and stewardship of both the award and the chapel. We are also grateful for the financial support from the Jacob and Therese Hershey Foundation, the Dudley T. Doherty Foundation, and all the donors who helped underwrite this year's Oscar Romero Award and the 2022-23 program season ensuring that the chapel and our programs are open and accessible to all. Big hand to all the supporters. Now one last word about today's program. Following the invocation, Kelly Johnson, our Director of Public Programs, will introduce and present each awardee. After the awards presentation, board member and chair of the chapel's program committee Omar El Halagi will moderate a conversation with the awardees, giving us an opportunity to learn more about their work and what sustains their spirits working on the front lines of social justice. Following the program, there will be a reception on the plaza, providing additional opportunities for community and conversation. So with that, again, it's my pleasure to welcome you and add my welcome uh, to the Rothko Chapel and to present our board member and senior pastor of Covenant Church Houston, the Reverend Laura Mayo, who will deliver the invocation. I wanna invite you into an eyes wide open invocation an opportunity to center in this space, a time to breathe together and hold silence, a time to begin our celebration of the work of justice and the joy and solidarity that this celebration brings. So with our eyes open, let's consider this sacred space. Look at the paintings. Consider the light and the darkness. Soak it all in. And as you do, hear these words of Oscar Romero. We plant seeds 
that one day will grow. We water seeds already planted, knowing that they hold future promise. We lay foundations that will need further development. We cannot do everything. And there's a sense of liberation in realizing that. This enables us to do something and to do it very well. It may be incomplete, but it's a beginning, a step along the way. Let's breathe together, thinking these words again, letting them reverberate within us. We cannot do everything, and there's a sense of liberation in realizing that. It enables us to do something and do it well. It may be incomplete, but it's a beginning, a step along the way. Let's hold silence. Spirit of love, come and dwell among us in this time. Come, Holy One of so many names. Come and be with us as we celebrate and as we further our commitments for love and peace and justice. Come and be with us as we consider the justice work of Oscar Romero who inspires us the justice work of Reverend Erica Ferguson, Seconda Joseph, the People's Paper Co-op, Rothko Chapel. This day we honor those among us who are doing the work of justice and doing it well. Know the work is not finished. And so, Spirit, Holy One, Inspire us this day to do what's ours to do, to do our work of justice and peace and love, to take another step along the way. Amen. Thank you, Reverend Laura, for centering us in this sacred space today. Hi, everyone. My name is Kelly Johnson. I am the program director here at the Rothko Chapel. Uh, the nominations and selection process for this year's Romero Awardees was as challenging as it was inspiring. I'm grateful we're able to gather here to celebrate grassroots work together today and cultivate a much-needed moment of joy, reflection, and recognition amidst our on ongoing struggles for justice. All right, so are y'all ready to get the party started tonight? <laughs> All right, let's do it. So um, I will be presenting the awardees in order of geographical distance from the chapel, starting with those furthest from Houston and ending with our hometown honoree. So first, I'd like to introduce the People's Paper Co-op, AKA the PPC, a women-led arts advocacy initiative located in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, connecting formerly incarcerated women with artists, civil rights lawyers, and other urgent resources to amplify their stories, dreams, and visions 
for a more just and free world. Founded in 2014 as an initiative with the Village of Arts and Humanities in North Philadelphia, the PPC looks to women in reentry as the leading criminal legal experts our society needs to hear from and positions incarceration as a public health crisis. Since 2018, the People's Paper Co-op has collaborated with the Philadelphia Community Bail Fund on their annual Black Mamas Bailout Campaign to raise awareness on the systemic inequities of cash bail uh, and to raise funds to free black mothers and caregivers from incarceration for Mother's Day. Each year, the PPC connects a powerful cohort of women in reentry with artisan advocates to create a poster series, which we do have some outside that you'll be able to get at the reception, as well as a corresponding set of exhibitions, t-shirts, parades, press conferences, pre press conferences, and events to support the bailout campaign. And they've raised over $200,000 to free black mothers and caregivers through this collaborative work. Their art has reached thousands through interactive public art campaigns and a diverse array of exhibitions from the Philadelphia Museum of Art and Philadelphia City Hall to detention centers, church basement legal clinics, billboards, and guerrilla wheat paste murals. And as of this last Friday night, they opened a new exhibition at Haverford College called Let's Get Free, the transformative art and activism of the People's Paper Co-op, showcasing nearly 10 years of their collaborative work as a model for effecting change through art and helping peop free people from an exceptionally adversarial and punitive criminal justice system. The People's Paper Co-op brings art and activism together in concrete ways to remove the stigmas and obstacles created by a criminal record and to amplify the voices of women directly impacted to advocate for liberation. Please join me in honoring Courtney Bowles and Mark Strandquist of the People's Paper Co-op with the 2023 Oscar Romero Award. much for this unbelievable honor. Um, thank you. It's such a pleasure and a joy to be alongside so many dedicated, passionate people, and in the name of someone who is equally um, dedicated and passionate. Sorry, I'm really bad at this. Um, on behalf of the many, many people, the many hands, the many hearts and love that make this work possible, um, we are overjoyed to accept this on behalf of the People's Paper Co-op. Um, I wanna bring some, some facts that, are, um, that, that drive our work into this space, unfortunately. Um, so two out of three people that are held in jail have not been convicted of a crime. There are more people in this country with criminal records than the entire population of France. And 80% of women that are imprisoned in jails are mothers. This crisis is our call to action and why we look to women in reentry as the experts that the cities, states, and those in positions of power need to listen to to create lasting and impactful change. Um, when our phone does that thing where it like reminds you of like where you were seven years ago and, and in the winter of Philly sometimes that can be horrible because you're like oh we were seven years ago we were in Houston uh, in a very warm place not in our cold city um, 
actually, seven years today, uh, we opened an exhibit at Project Row Houses um, with our friend Ryan Dennis um, uh, called Shattering the Concrete. Um, and as, as part of our like three, three week residency, we got to come here and see this incredible chapel and institution, um, but also the amazing work at SHAPE uh, uh, and, and just so many artists and activists in the Third Ward. And, and I think for a lot of our work, what we learned in that three week process has been about trying to like, not only partner with institutions that are pushing the boundaries, but to always look to support, partner with, uh, collaborate with the amazing grassroots activists who have been doing the work for decades. Um, so, uh, like Kelly said, um, on Friday, which I wish we could have just teleported you all there, um, our almost decade-long uh, uh, retrospective uh, felt like a family reunion. Uh, there were screams of joy when people uh, who hadn't seen people that they were locked up with 10 years before were coming together to see each other now as leaders, uh, to see themselves reflected as the best versions of themselves, not the, the worst thing that the state says about them. So much of our work is about people reclaiming their story, literally often getting their, their records legally cleared and then transforming them, tearing up their criminal records, turning that into brand new sheets of blank paper that they can rewrite their future narrative. But most important, we had uh, the current group of formerly incarcerated women we're working with who got to see the legacy of all the women that have come before them who have been using their art not just to talk about freedom but to literally free people with their art. Um, you know, these women are are often freeing women they were just locked up with a couple months ago. And you know, this May, right before Mother's Day, we'll be outside of the jail with a pop-up art exhibit. We love being in institutions and museums and stuff like that, but uh, we feel most comfortable outside of the jail, on a sidewalk, creating a gorgeous art so that these moms are welcomed home by their sisters who have liberated them with their, their amazing voices. Um, and really, what that exhibit was, was a reflection of all the people who, who make these movements possible. Uh, we need artists, we need advocates, we need these kind of cross collaborations to, to make uh, movements successful. Um, and to kind of close this out, we really wanted to kind of bring some of the amazing folks' voices uh, into this room. Yeah, so as Mark was saying, that, that, that last date is this future world where no folks are incarcerated, right? Um, so I wanted to read a portion of a poem by um, dear friends and collaborators, Tamika Bell, Paulette Carrington, uh, Star Granger, Ivy Johnson, and Yvonne Newkirk. I hadn't been outside after 9 p.m. in years. I wanted to go out and look up, to see the sky, what it looked like. When I finally did, all I could see was freedom. You can't really see the walls because it's dark. You trick yourself into believing, into dreaming. Freedom was in the sky, in the stars. I couldn't reach it, but I could see it. When you have a life sentence, you can't even see it. The ladies that were serving death by incarceration, that's who gave me hope. On the day that they come home, we're gonna be there and it's gonna be beautiful. The sun is shining and there is a rainbow in the sky. The clouds will form into a hand like it's releasing everyone, and then into a smile that's smiling down on everyone. The air smells fresh, smells like flowers. Everybody's real colorful, you know, bright and smiles. We're clapping and hugging. People in wheelchairs, people with canes and crutches. And then we see them coming towards the gates, but they're not walking, they're running. 
They're so happy to leave, they're running out, screaming, we finally made it. We're all standing there at the gate like an assembly line, hugging each and every last one of them, people in wheelchairs, people with canes and crutches. We've aged while waiting for our loved ones to come home. People will see their grandmas, sisters, mothers, and friends who they never ever thought would, they'd see on the outside. And we'll all be there saying welcome home. As they walk through the gates, their uniforms will turn into whatever they want to be wearing. They make us wear cocoa brown in there, the most industrial colors. Prison tries to strip away your femininity. They'll feel the sun on their face like it's for the first time. They'll breathe in that air and I think the earth is going to shake. A fleet of limousines is waiting for them. There'll be music, flowers, parades, and a family reunion like you've never seen before. And then Peachy would appear. She was our go-to. She worked so hard to help us get our freedom and never got hers before she left the world. She's there, hugging everybody, kissing everybody, and saying, I told y'all I knew it. She would see that all her talking to us, all her hard work, everything finally came true. She can witness and see it with her own eyes, that it really did happen. We're free. This is real. People are always saying, you'll never get out. The law will never change. We heard that for 24, 35, 40 years. And here we are. Here we are. The impossible is what we do. So that day will come for all the women serving life. And when it comes, we'll call it the day of the flower because flowers are beautiful and they grow. And we want these ladies to grow and bloom. And we're here to support them every step of the way. Thank you all. Thank you so much, y'all. That was beautiful. <clears throat> Our next awardee is Reverend Erica Ferguson, an ordained interfaith minister and community organizer from Dallas, who is on the spiritual front lines of the reproductive justice fight here in Texas. Reverend Erica is the principal of Envision Justice, the reproductive justice strategy firm of the future, providing strategic guidance, tactical support, and mission assistance to organizations, private companies, and leaders in government to craft messaging and create frameworks for unique programs around reproductive justice. She's also the chief visionary officer of Reproductive Justice Post Row, a vibrant online movement and community that provides practical knowledge, tools, and skills for any individual to influence their own circle on reproductive justice. Trained initially as an educator and drawing upon her own personal experience, Reverend, Reverend Erica knows what a successful movement is made of, networks of people willing to bridge divides, to say it plain, and to take risks for the benefit of the whole. Throughout her reproductive justice career, Reverend Erica has challenged the dehumanization of people and brought her compassionate light to their reproductive stories. Fighting for reproductive justice led her to answer the call to become an interfaith minister over 15 years ago and a national public speaker on matters of reproductive justice. Reverend Erica was a co-litigant in the landmark Texas Senate Bill 8, known as the Heartbeat Bill, in 2021, uh, as a plaintiff represented by the Center for Reproductive Rights. And she has blessed clinics, escorted patients, and organized clergy in support of reproductive rights. 
Reverend Erica has made it her life's mission to ensure reproductive rights are possible for future generations, and she believes we must be bold and brave in crafting a new vision for the movement that includes and works for everyone. She says, I feel called to make sure that religion and faith are not used as tools of oppression, but instead guide us toward our collective liberation. Please join me in honoring Reverend Erica Ferguson with the 2023 Oscar Romero Award. I should let it be said, you should never give a minister a microphone. <laughs> but I, I do try to follow the Beatitudes, which is to be brief, to be clear, and be seated. <laughs> I'd like to first thank the Rothko Chapel and the host committee for bestowing this honor upon me. I am not sure that I will find the words, and I am a wordy person. <laughs> I'd also like to thank my fellow awardees for inspiring me with the work that you do every day. I know that it is not easy. I'd also like to tell you the truth. I would not be here if it were not for the love and the care and the support of my family. My children, I know it sounds trite, but they are the reason I do the work that I do. My father in love, for inspiring me with a deep sense of what it looks like to love someone that you haven't known your entire life. And lastly, my husband, who every day supports me, reminds me, enlivens me, and inspires me. Truly, I am here because of his love. And to my grandparents on the other side of the veil, and my ancestors. I am because they are. I'd also like to leave you with three words. And these three words are important because they are the stepping stones for the future. And they're important because they become the guiding light in which each of you can follow your own unique path. You see, all of us have a reproductive story. Each one of us got here as a result of someone's reproductive efforts. These three words are appreciation, activation, and elevation. And I start with appreciation because everything grows when you appreciate it. And what you appreciate sends a message to those about their worth and their dignity 
and their inherent goodness. If you're not sure whether appreciation is vital, imagine how good you feel when someone says thank you. I'd also like to leave you with the word of activation. And the reason this word is important is because each and every one of us is activated by something. And I want to differentiate between a trigger and an activation. A trigger is something that happens outside of you. Activation is something that comes from within you. Each of us has the power within our own selves to do something for someone. It is not just me. It is each and every one of us that make up a movement. It is each and every one of us that has the opportunity to activate something within ourselves. It is not something that has to be great, grand, and glorious by society's standards. It could be looking at the person next to you and telling them, I see you. I'm here for you. I care about you. We do not have to spend our days suppressing the goodness of who we are. And I dare say that the world that works for everyone, the future of reproductive justice, is in our own hands. I am simply a representative of all of you. I am a reflection of infinite possibilities. I will also say that the work that I do is risky. It's dangerous, but so is love. I'd like to leave you with elevation. And the reason elevation is such an incredible word on this road towards reproductive justice is because each of us has the opportunity to elevate what is real, what is righteous, and what is true. And there is no opposition. There is only an awareness that each of us belongs to each other. That none of us gets free unless we all get free. And that goes for cisgender white men. And that goes for those that are gay or straight. And that goes for those that are the most marginalized. That goes for every one of us. No one gets left behind in the vision for the future. I want you all to know that to move towards justice is simple. We simply search our hearts. We do what is right when the time is right. I'd like for you to indulge me by taking an oath. I would call it a vow. If you will, would you please stand if you're able? I'd like for you to place your hands over your heart. I'd like for you to know that this moment is precious. It's sacred. There will never be another moment like this again. 
and as you feel your heartbeat, allow it to remind you that the work that we're doing is not for us. We are already benefiting because we're here now. The work that we do now towards reproductive justice are for those that don't even exist yet. And if you would take this vow with me, repeat after me, I know you can do this. I, I promise, promise to live from my heart, to love from my heart, and to do what's right in my heart. And if each of us do that every single day, one day at a time, one moment at a time, one breath at a time, we will create a world that works for everyone. You've just taken a vow. Now your marching orders are to go out and live it. Thank you. Thank you, Reverend Erica, for that. Our final awardee today is Seconda Joseph, AKA For the People Bay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Seconda <laughs> is a devoted, conscientious activist organizer and justice worker here in Houston, Texas. She promotes organic, community based approaches to solidarity work and shirks at those who ignore the capacities of those for whom they advocate. While her organizing work broadly focuses on humanitarian rights and concerns, she utilizes black abolitionist principles to create, build, and work beside vulnerable communities toward more liberating life options for those born to inequality. Seconda is a co-founder and director of Smart Media and Organizing with Imaginoir BLM HTX, a black women-led collective whose aim is to educate, empower, and build coalitions that address issues adversely impacting black lives in the city of Houston. In addition to training, consulting, and mutual aid work around housing, food insecurity, and bail, she delivers multimedia interventions and mind-body strategies toward liberatory existence, including leading intergenerational comedic yoga classes with the realization that healing work is essential to activism. Inspired by the anti-lynching passion of her ancestor mentor, Ida B. Wells, she is the radio host of Imagine a World on All Real Radio, broadcast from Project Row Houses, and curates online platforms and exhibitions with her collective. Most recently, she was involved in organizing the exhibition Rooted in Abolition, in Love, in Imagination at the Deluxe Theater. The show and related events look to artists and storytellers as prophets, helping us to see and imagine how to create a more just and loving world free from punitive systems. Through all of her work, Seconda highlights black radical traditions for striving and imagining new worlds in which we can all breathe, believing that traditional and gradualist approaches sacrifice the most marginalized. She says, we must trust the people we are in community with and use the resources that we have to highlight their voices and acknowledge the power, creativity, and wisdom that comes from communities who find themselves needing help because of systemic oppression. Please join me in honoring Seconda Joseph with the 2023 Oscar Romero Award.
<laughs> I am so humbled and honored um, and grateful for this moment. What's up? <laughs> there is so uh, many people in this space. Um, the reason why I am who I am and I believe what I believe is because of the way that they loved me. Um, but I'm trying not to cry, so let me try to get through it. Uh, thank you, Rothko uh, Chapel, for not only uh, awarding me a cash award come with this, y'all. So, you know, they put their money where the mouth was. And that matters, though, you know, when you're talking about grassroots, uh, whether it's an organization or whether it's a person, you know, sometimes people acknowledge and they do the good things, but they don't actually see that, hey, there are some resources and there are some things that people need so that they can continue to do what they're doing. So thank you, and thank you for the folks who were, the folks that I know who, you know, like Kelly and, you know, who were interacting with us and, and Anna. They represented y'all well, Rothko. Um, and I know it takes a lot. Um, I want to thank uh, my extended community, um, so many folks here who just see you and, and create space and opportunity. Thank you. Um, I want to thank my BLM HTX Imaginor family. If you could stand up. They don't want to stand up. <laughs> y'all know who y'all is. <laughs> you know, um, what's up, Stevens? Orozco? Um, there is no way, like people ask, well, how did you start doing this? Like this was not planned, it was 100% faith. Um, Mike, Brown's, uh, the police officer that killed Mike Brown was not indicted. And I just remember I had a radio show at the time and Stevens came on the show. And um, at that point, I was just like, I have to do more than just create space uh, to listen and to hear from other activists. Like I have to go. And I went to that, um, I went to that, that, I went to the Galleria. We shut the gallery down. I was terrified. I was terrified because there was a lot of police officers and they were not kind. They were not smiling. They looked like, if you just look at me wrong, I will tear your head off. And in my mind, I remember thinking, I ain't going to jail. You know, I, I wanted to go. But I heard spirits say, stay. So I did. You know, and then I remembered that I hadn't been to a rally or anything like that since I was a kid. You know, when I was a kid, me and my brother, <laughs> my mama brought us to those types of things. We might be the only little kids in meetings where they're talking about, you know, abolish the death penalty and all that sort of thing right here in this city. As a matter of fact, at the church that I grew up at, St. Peter Claver, where the nuns and where the community members cared about justice. Um, and then I was reminded that, you know, not only did my mama instill those things into us, but her mama did it to her. 
My grandmother loved black people. <laughs> my nanny loved black people. So, you know, so did I. You know, she was able to see how the systems and how life happens. And she was able to see how unjust it was. You know, and without telling me, she showed me and she showed us uh, what that meant. Um, so those seeds were planted in me. But when, we, when after showing up at the, the, uh, the rally, right after that, Sandra Bland's life, uh, she was found dead in a jail cell. Myself, some folks I really knew, like Carrie, um, and some folks who, you know, I knew from being at church or showing up at different things, like Brandy and Biko um, and Andrea, Cleve and Lanicia, we showed up at the jail. And I know I'm missing some names, y'all, don't judge me. But we showed up the, at the jail and we kept showing up for vigil, right? We wasn't, we did do a good, hot, newsworthy protest one time. <laughs> but most days we just sat, you know? We sat, we prayed, uh, we were harassed by police. They cut the trees down in the summer. It's Waller County. It was the hottest summer in August. Like, all kind of things were happening. Um, but there we developed a community. Um, and what we realized is that there are so many things happening in the city of Houston. We had to address some of the things that happened. And it's funny because most of us was already a part of the same faith community. And to me, that's how spirit works. It wasn't planned. We were not here trying to be no activists or organizers. We just saw something happen and we responded to it. Um, and then a little further on the, up the road, Cleve came to us, who's a minister. I'm telling y'all the story. Y'all gonna have to tell me when I'm going on too long, okay? So uh, Cleve was like, um, this guy met some, some folks from the white church. It was like, <laughs> I was like, come and, and uh, we're having a, <laughs> you know, they wanted to have a vigil that acknowledged the things that was happening. That was right, at, right after Dallas's, um, the thing that happened in Dallas, Philando Castile had just been um, murdered by police. And we, I was, I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to do it because I felt like, why are we convincing communities? Why are we trying to convince white people who don't care, right, in some sense, this, this, this space? And I'm not saying everybody don't care, but a lot of people just don't care. If they care, even in their minds, a lot of people don't put their money and their time or any of that, right, where their heart is. If they did, the world wouldn't be like this, right? So I didn't want to do that. Like, I was like, what is it that we have to tell them? Like, it's too much for us to do. It's too much going on to try to convince other people of our humanity. But Spirit said, go. So I went. <laughs> and when we went, what I appreciate is that we did not compromise. We did not go in there acting like this was okay. We did not go in there saying it's equal. We won't, can't we all just get along? Can't police and community? Because that's not the truth. The truth is our community is oppressed. 
The truth is, it's, it's not equal. If, if we were empowered, if there was that kind of thing happening, then we could say, can we all just get along? But that's not true. And truth will set you free. So we did not go in there saying that. We went in there through art, through poetry, through speaking the names of the people who passed away. We talked about what was really happening. And some people were offended. Right? Some people were offended. And, but that relationship, um, that talk connected us with a group called Project Curate that Matt, uh, I don't know if Matt here, but uh, Matt runs. And the reason why that's significant is because I wouldn't be here probably without that connection, right? Um, and when you're doing this work, Unfortunately, it's not an equal space, so sometimes you need white folks to legitimize what you're doing, <laughs> right? You, you need, we didn't have a bank account, you know, to do, so we do mutual aid, if you don't know, meaning we help people pay rent, we do all that kind of stuff, and sometimes people are not going to give grants to grassroots black organizers, you know, they don't trust you, they don't trust us, right? So that relationship helped us to do the very work that we do. And because we did not compromise in our integrity in the relationship, because we didn't go in there being so thankful, like, you know, I'm so glad that you accepted us. We went in there saying, we can do this, but we're gonna do it in the way that it needs to be done, <laughs> right? Um, and, and, and I'm thankful to the group, to the people that I work with, because I'm saying this like this was all me. That's not true, right? Like this is, this is a community of people who came together, who believed, who loved black people, the way my grandmother loves black people, who came from different walks of life, and who was willing to do whatever it takes to push this city, this community a little bit more. Um, and we've been doing that every day since. And I also wanna say that me in particular, um, the way that I do what I do, all of that is because of my family. I have a huge family. <laughs> like my mama's first cousins and second cousins, we all like this, you know, there is no distinction First, second, third cousins, we grew up in the same houses, we lived together, we, you know, the kind of family that you, you don't ask, you just show up, you just open the refrigerator, you know? And that's the kind of love I take into the work that I do. I would never be able to do it if I was not loved and cared for the way that I was cared for and still am cared for the way that I am cared for. So I wanna thank my family. I want to thank you for the way that not only you love me, but you love each other in these hard times, because it is not easy. We are not a rich people, but we have each other, and because of that, we have a good life. So I just want to thank you. There's so much more I can say, but I'm going to stop. <laughs> thank you for this award. Thank you to my friends.
Thank you, Sakanda. That was beautiful. I really appreciate everything that y'all have shared in this space today. Um, and I want to, again, once again, congratulate you and thank you for all your dedication and commitment to justice and displaying it here um, for all of us to, to see and be a part of. So let's uh, give our 2023 Rothko Chapel Oscar Romero awardees another big round of applause as they return to the stage. Hello everyone, my name is Omar Hawagi and I have the distinct privilege of being the program committee chair and board member here at the Rothko Chapel, which also meant that I got to oversee the committee that selected these incredible recipients this year. And to echo what Kelly said earlier, it was a very difficult process with some incredibly inspiring individuals, but I am sitting here very confident that we selected some truly remarkable human beings and organizations and I want to thank you all for making the time to both be here and for the work that you do. Now, we have the privilege of being able to sit with all of you for this moderated conversation, and I will be very upfront with what I hope to get out of this conversation. I want it to be nourishing. So if I ask you a question that doesn't feel nourishing, answer the question you wish I had asked. <laughs> Our time here is limited, and I want to make sure that we step off this stage and that you feel like you had the experience you wanted at the Rothko Chapel, but also that we can make sure that everyone here today is not only inspired by your work, but feels the same kind of nourishment that I heard from each of you when you were speaking. And on that note, I want to start off with my first question. What is an experience that you have had recently in your work that brought you joy? I'm going to go ahead and start because it is probably one of the most funny experiences that I've, I've had. Um, I travel out of the state accompanying women to receive um, access to abortion in another state. I do that in one day. This particular time, one of the women traveling was um, late and I had to make the decision up to this point, since I've been doing this, I've never left anyone behind. I had to make the decision whether to go with some of them ahead or wait for her. I chose to wait. And we got, uh, she got there, and we got through security, and all of you know what getting through security at an airport is like. We had five minutes, and I put my shoes in my bag so that I could run with her to get to the plane. On my way, one of my shoes fell out of my bag, AKA Cinderella style. <laughs> we missed the plane. <laughs> I only had one shoe. <laughs> and no socks. There are no shoes at the airport to buy, y'all. <laughs> 
My husband was an hour and a half away. And apparently, this is a tidbit, you cannot get on a plane without shoes. I know, go figure. I found some socks and the woman I was traveling with created a diversion so that I could get on the plane with her. All of it is like a TV sitcom. I get to the other side, the day goes on, there's still no shoes on my feet an entire day. It's time for us to get back to the airport. The Uber driver uh, doesn't know me and drives away and I start running after him again. Did I mention I didn't have on any shoes? <laughs> Eventually I caught up with him and we all returned home and there was a hole in the bottom of the socks. <laughs> that is very funny. And it also brought me a lot of joy to realize that come what may, no matter how awful or humorful life is, it's gonna do what it needs to do. So. I love it. <laughs> and your shoes look great today. Thank you. They look fantastic. I managed to keep both of them. So great. I feel good. <laughs> you can stay on the stage with or without them. <laughs> I think um, Mark, Mark referenced it earlier, but because it's so fresh in, in my mind, I am thinking of our opening that we had on Friday. So yeah, after, after doing such beautiful, powerful work alongside so many people, um, we had the opportunity to have a celebration and have so many folks that created the work have it be seen by them that other people were seeing it, right? So you create work, you don't know what happens to it when it goes out into the world, how it's perceived. But to have so many wonder humans there wearing damn sparkly outfits, like eating vegan pizza, drinking wine, and screaming at each other with like the most love I've ever heard. And then having people see them and see their work and know that it had an impact was just like my heart was exploding. And, it, and, and, and as Mark said, it felt like a family reunion, like the dream family reunion that we wish we all had. If, if not, you know, maybe not everybody gets along with their family. I'm blessed that I do, but this was, yeah, that's very fresh in my, in my heart and my mind. And yeah, it brought a whole lot of joy. Yeah. I was, um, I mean, the most beautiful day of the year is always the bailout um, across the street from the jail, but like, uh, at the exhibit you were mentioning, we were setting up, there were so many beautiful moments of that night, but um, uh, Faith, who's the lead fellow, Faith Bartley of the PPC, um, we were, you know, it's, it's serious work, but it's also joyful work, and it's full of life and color and so much. Um, we we're setting a mic up to, to do some opening remarks, and Faith's, uh, we're, we're, we're in the other room, and all of a sudden we start hearing tainted love being screamed. <laughs> by a 65-year-old amazing activist. Uh, and all of a sudden, we're on a college campus and many other students start joining Faith in a karaoke outside of the gallery. So anyways, um, I think when you, uh, we, we try to bring a, uh, professionalism is not maybe like the, a professional t-shirt. The, the beauty of like getting to do this kind of work is that you get to promote your, your project and whatever the materials you are, but we just show up with love, so. So 
You're also going to get in a lot of trouble for saying that she's 65. I'm just going to say that now. That's a no-no. <laughs> she's not. <laughs> That's why. <laughs> um, I think uh, uh, recently uh, we hosted a, a art exhibit called Rooted in Abolition. And that entire experience, one, it was in Fifth Ward, which is the north side, <laughs> which is what I claim, even though I'm really not from Fifth Ward. <laughs> um, but um, so, and then another thing is I really believe in abolition. Um, and abolition, I love Andrea's sort of definition of ab abolition, which is a community of care right, where uh, there is little to no harm, and when there is harm, there's a way to um, not only address the harm, but address the reason why somebody did something. So example is somebody stole some money out your purse, and then um, you pull somebody to the side, hey, you stole, right, that's a punishment. But if that person is just apologetic or say I'll never steal again, yet they still don't have food, then that's really not addressing the issue. Um, abolition is addressing the heart of issues. Um, so being able to use art to help conversation to happen, and then a lot of the artists that, uh, that uh, was a part of the exhibit were people who were also abolitionists. And even if they wouldn't, there are people who really give to community. So there is a type of like truth in their art, right? There's a there's a sort of sacrifice and lived experience in their work. Uh, Cassandra, uh, one of the folks who is also a part of Imagine or Bielomaciac, she had this film that I still can't get. You know some of the things uh, that was in it. Uh, on the film, but it started with like Toni Morrison, and one of the, it was called like the the name of her film was like the Final Solution, and she and Toni Morrison was saying before the Final Solution there was another solution, there was a first solution, and then another solution, right? Um, and then it just on one one part of that film, um, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, y'all look her up. I love watching her speak. But uh, one of the things that sh she talked about was just how, dang, I forgot. <laughs> I brought y'all up. I forgot. I forgot. But I'm going to say this, though. Um, one, of the, <laughs> one, of the things, one of the things that she constantly talks about, because <laughs> I, I don't remember what it said, but I, it was good. <laughs> but <laughs> it brought me joy. But I can say that what she does speak often is that um, where there is care, sort of for humanity, like there is care, where life is precious, life is precious. Okay, I got it. Life is precious, life is precious. Meaning that if we live in a society where a person's life is precious, like you being harmed, that's a big deal. A person that goes to jail, like, like nobody is dispensable. Um, so yeah, that, those are some, and just having people from the community and, you know, other folks being able to engage with their work, uh, all of it, that was really exciting.
Oh, I love it. Yeah. Oh. Seconda, during your remark, something really stood out to me. From all of your remarks, there were so many gems. But you talked about going to this white church and not wanting to justify your humanity. I remember after the Muslim ban was enacted, I felt very similar. Yeah. Of what does it look like for me to have to then protest and prove to people that my entire religious group belongs in this country. I'm curious for each of you, how do you then balance the desire to go inward and protect your community, and then the almost reality of needing others to not do it alone? I think for, for me, and I got a shout out of uh, Cleve and Carrie, uh, who gave Matt hell at the beginning. <laughs> um, but for me, uh, not saying that they gave him hell, but they, you know, hold his feet to the fire, right? Uh, like refuse to, oh, there you go. Refuse to compromise um, around, because we were, for example, we were creating, or they were creating curriculum. And some of this curriculum was like, this is not it, you know? Um, and instead of like just saying, oh yeah, like, okay, we, you know, let's just try to make the best of it. There is a boundary around what, how you work in coalition with folks and in community with folks around like where you would compromise. So yes, I compromise on us seeing things different I come, and seeing things different is not going to be like having some curriculum, creating a particular space where I am going to center whiteness, right? Because everywhere we go, whiteness is centered, right? The culture, the larger culture, it, okay? It, it's not, you know, we hear words like, oh, this professional. Most of the time, no, it's just white culture, right? Like. So, so when you're in that particular space and we, when you're working with other people, we have to acknowledge the truth. And with the acknowledgement of the truth, then we sort of work out, well, how do we do this and bring folks in? But in these positions where you are, for, for, for black people, and I know this is for other, you know, other people who are also like, I hate the word in the margins, right? But that are fighting for liberation in so, some sort of way. We have to remember that it's not equal, kind of like I said at first. So that means the people that we work with, the people that we become in relationship with have to acknowledge that and step back. And step back doesn't mean that they're not being a human being, right? You want people to be them. But, you, but, you, but those people have to acknowledge what's happening. And if they can do that, then they can say, oh, this is uncomfortable, but I trust you with it. Let you, I don't know, what you want me to do? And, and that sort of posture lets me know that this is somebody that I can work with. This is somebody, even when they mess up, even when you know, things happen and I feel offended or you know, like this, it, it's not gonna ruin the relationship because their posture is correct. They care about what's happening and they have already acknowledged the truth. But if, the, if you working with somebody and they can't acknowledge the truth and, and they're too uncomfortable to say, well, well, let me let you do it, 
and let you be wrong instead of me being wrong. <laughs> if they can't say that, then that's probably not a safe space. That's probably, that relationship may not last too long. And that's my, yeah. That, um, it's all yours. <laughs> I think for us, I mean, like one thing, you know, there's a few things that are super important. Like one, our project is not about, you know, being extractive and being and asking the women in our program like to tell the saddest, most traumatic, most fucked up stories of their lives, but to use art. Uh, I loved how you were talking earlier about like abolition and art is a way for us to kind of project into the future the world we want to build, right? And and so when we're working with the women in our program, the the art, the stories, the poetry, the brainstorming, the organizing we're doing is all about visualizing a blueprint for building a future where all women are free, where all of us are free. Um, so first and foremost, like, you know, the whole frame of the way that uh, stories are told is, is based in that. And when we're going, you know, so we create sort of a nucleus within the cohort that we try to create a safe peer-led space that's, uh, you know, we're anarchists, so we come from a background of like, we shouldn't have celebrity artists and celebrity leaders, which should be about everybody has the power uh, to be the advocate that they need, you know, to, that all of us need. Um, and so in our circle, as we create that community, as we go out uh, asking about how do you sort of like protect and support, um, you know, oftentimes media, oftentimes colleges, oftentimes institutions that we engage with do operate in extractive, often uh, violent forms of sort of, you know, storytelling, wanting to ask people about like what the worst days of their life often. Uh, and so a lot of it is also about reorienting that relationship and, and being honest um, and, and pushing when needed, so. Yeah, and I think so much of our work is about building trust and building relationships and building space where people feel safe. And and people sometimes say to us like, oh, you're, you're working to give voice to the voiceless. And we're like, no, everybody's got an amazing voice. I've just been systematically silenced. And what we're trying to do is create a platform for people to be heard and to get the support that they need, right? Because when people have support from their peers, from institutions, from spaces, you can do a whole lot. Um, when, when you mentioned that, like, that space and supporting one another, the poem that I read earlier, um, Three of the women were sentenced to life as juveniles and came home after the 25, 36, 40 years. Um, one of them is Savan. Her, her daughter is currently serving death by incarceration in Pennsylvania prisons. And one woman who co-wrote it um, credits her, her survival, um, her long-term sentence survival to the women who were serving life. And that poem was etched into wood that we burnt to represent the phoenix like, and created this monument to the day that the women are coming home. And it was circular to represent a crown, but also to represent that we can't do this work by ourselves. Mm -hmm. And it's done when we have the support of, of others. So yeah, that's what made, made me think. I would probably say that my work centers around what is community? And the vision that I talk about and I work with in reproductive justice is that all of us are in community. There is no boundary or border around community. And to invite everyone to have a place 
in community. So then there's nothing to protect. I'm not trying to switch out one system for another, one group of people at the top for another. What I do in reproductive justice is work with people until we all can see that there's a world that can work for everyone. And, and that's really critical. Then you don't have to cover yourself to protect yourself from anyone because you've just invited them to be with you. The work each of you do is, and I'm not trying to speak for you, maybe from an outsider perspective, exhausting. Are there moments where you feel exhausted? And if so, what do you do to sustain and nourish yourself? Listen, life is exhausting. What, what are we talking about here, right? We're not doing anything else that anybody else doesn't get exhausted. Just getting up and trying to find matching shoes, if you will, <laughs> is exhausting, right? Life is not meant to be um, always replenishing. We can't live in perpetual summer. Things will die, right? So understanding that everything exists in cycles, there's winter, there's summer, there's spring. Yes, there will be times in our life where we're exhausted, and then there'll be times in our life where we are replenished. There are times in our life where we must be exhausted because the work needs to be done. So having that as the framework, and then anybody worth a grain of salt knows you can, you know, go to sleep when you're tired and then get back up. The replenishment, the re revitalization, the nourishing is already built within. We just have to utilize it. Uh, on Mondays, I don't do nothing. <laughs> nothing. And it's funny because at one time, I remember uh, my great aunt, and she's here, my aunt Agnes, I had went to her house one day, and she was like, you haven't been keeping a Sabbath. And because she used the word Sabbath, we don't talk like that, you know what I mean? It let me know, and at the time, I really was exhausted. But it made me think about the Sabbath is about rest. So after that, I tried to take, make Sunday a Sabbath, but I do a lot of stuff on Sunday, so it didn't work. So then I was like, okay, I'll do it on Mondays, okay? But, but at first, I kept, like, there's guilt. There's always, you think, okay, I could be doing this. I'm supposed to do this, you know? And it seems like the things that you're doing are very, very important, and they are, right? So there is, so at first when I took time out, and at first it was just till 3 o'clock on Mondays. It was like, okay, after, after 3, then I get back to work. But my mind kept going. But I didn't give up. I just kept doing Mondays, even though my mom was gone. And it, 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 unless it was very important, I didn't do anything. And eventually, I just stopped. I just, you know, was able to rest. And then I was like, no, I'm taking the whole Monday. <laughs> and I love Mondays now. Like, they are, and it feels so good, you know. And I realized that that, that day of rest helps me to be creative. It, I look forward to it. And sometimes things happen where I can't. You know, or a short season happens where it's like back to three o'clock resting, but that doesn't last long, you know, and it's, it's just been such a blessing. Also, um, I teach comedic yoga. So like when I get up in the morning, first I, I try to do my prayer and meditation 
And then on some days, not every day, like I give my body and myself that time. So when I start my day, you know, I'm, a, I'm, I'm relaxed uh, and that helps. And I believe in joy. Again, my people from South Louisiana. So joy is part of our life. It is not just something that you just know. Celebration is what you do. That's, that's important, you know. Um, and that's, a, that's another way uh, that I rest. Let me just say this, because there's this idea that somehow we have to stop everything in order to be replenished. When you are guided by something bigger than yourself, it replenishes you. It restores you. When you are fully tapped in and turned on and you have the volume up, you will know when you need to rest. There is something about being with people who appreciate what you're doing, that gives you the breath of air that you need to keep going. That's how you know you're doing what you're guided to do. It doesn't drain you, it sustains you. So try to think about it from a different lens. And the reality is there is music and there is nature and there is care and comfort in a hug that in a moment's notice, all of a sudden you spring up in a well of aliveness that gives you the energy you need for the continued journey. I didn't have gray hair like five years ago. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna be honest. <laughs> like, I need to, I need to find that inner, inner part you've been talking about. Um, I recently, baby steps, right? Like, we all know, like, all the work that we do feels very urgent, but that urgency isn't going to go away, and trying to find that space to take a breath and like, okay, wow, I'm not gonna replicate systems I'm trying to break down by sending emails after 5 p.m. and on weekends because people need to rest. So that is a little baby thing that I'm doing, but I'm doing it. <laughs> um, I play in a sci-fi punk band that... <laughs> no, um... There's a lot more to it than that, but but um, but like I feel you know I mean in the exhibit there's more there's multiple memorials to folks that we've had the honor of working with who have passed for a variety of reasons and the work is heavy in a million ways and it's you know I think because a lot of this work is also about combining arts advocacy organizing so much within it, it's also so joyful and fulfilling, and I love how you talked about it. I mean, when we are deep in our campaign work, it's, it's, it is exhausting, but it's like the height of my life. And um, so, yeah, I, I scream in a band, we sing about <laughs> eco-terrorism on Mars. Um, <laughs> it's a whole different thing. <laughs> Representative, uh, Representative, Reverend Ferguson, I, also representative if you wanted it. Honestly, I felt it. Reverend Ferguson, you talked about this feeling when you're dialed in, and this is that moment when you know you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. Do you all remember one of the early moments in which you felt that way? Well, I will say, not to, you know, but... It's not the greatest story in the world, but I became dialed in when I was um, 
working, uh, I was six months pregnant, and I was escorting women into a clinic. And at that time, um, the opposition could come as close. There were no boundary laws. And I was pregnant, and it was an intense experience. I mean, the opposition was vicious and brutal, and someone spit on me. And it was in that moment, the level of rage that, that, that welled up in me. I am lucky that I didn't end up in someone's jail, but what I did in that moment was make a secret vow to myself that come what may, for the rest of my life, I was gonna do this work in some way, shape, or form. So while people tend to get away from anger and rage, I really understand that it's fuel. It's not long-term fuel, it's not sustainable, but it is that fire that lights you up to move forward. And so I use that, that, that stayed with me, and there's probably a teeny, tiny little ember in me still burning to continue the fight. So we, that energy, that traumatic experience is, is part of what keeps me going. So many moments. Um, after the bailout, we typically hold like a rally with a bunch of our advocacy partners, the Philadelphia Community Bail Fund, local ACLU, lots of lots of groups, uh, to call for an end to cash bail. Um, and um, we do a parade uh, down Broad Street, which is the goes from City Hall to Broad Street Ministries, where we have a huge celebratory event. Um, and we turn, you know, all of the art we've made in the spring that we've used to raise, you know, 200 grand to bail out black moms and caregivers, we actually turn into a people-powered art exhibit. Uh, we're taking it off the walls, uh, we wear it, we print hundreds of t-shirts, uh, create giant banners, parade, props, um, all kinds of signs. And there's just something about like hundreds of people uh, screaming slogans together and having just like random strangers, high school students join in. Um, and you know, I think for a lot of folks in our programs, like seeing, being able to take up space that has been, it's so often kind of um, pushed on them, uh, being able to really be in control uh, and, and to be looked at as, as the leaders that they deserve to be is everything. Um, and when you're speaking in that, that collective body, it's just the most powerful voice. So um, that's one thing. I think we, we, we think about this moment a lot and we talk about it a lot, but some of our work is working alongside civil rights attorneys to transform um, expungement clinics, right? The, the, that we co-design with folks who need those spaces the most, right? Um, no one likes to go into social service spaces. They're dehumanizing, they're often embarrassing, they're so many things, but right? If, we worked with folks who needed to have their records expunged to design them alongside lawyers, alongside artists. So when people go into those spaces, there's music playing, there's artwork, there's delicious food made by our rad elders. Um, and people are greeted by their peers instead of lawyers, right? We love lawyers, thank you. Oftentimes you speak another language. Um, so to be greeted by peers is a lot, it's really important. Um, and, and one of these clinics, um, you know, people tear up their criminal records, turn it into new paper, um, and embed it with a reverse mugshot and forward thinking writing about what their life would be like without a criminal record. And we talk to people afterwards, and 
This one woman was like, wow, I came here not knowing anyone and not knowing what to expect, and I'm leaving feeling like I went to a family reunion. And I can't think of any other social service space that feels like that. So um, yeah, I hold that, that really close to my heart. I, I got a call, so this is not back in the day, this was like a week ago, even, I don't even know if it was a whole week ago. Um, I got a call and uh, it was by a, a, a man that we used to work with, you know, doing mutual aid. He had, we got in contact with him from another organization called Restoring Justice um, here in the city and they bailed him out and we uh, pay for the hotel but hotels here, oftentimes, motels, really, right? Um, they are so cruel to the people who need to stay there, right? So we found ourselves, or I found myself, like, having to negotiate. But it's, you can't stay everywhere because when you just got to get out of jail, you have a particular ID. So you have to find a space that will accept you, you know, with whatever, whatever you got. Right, um, and also that you could afford, that we could help to afford, so that you know he could be in there until he was able to get on his feet. So every week it was some stuff with this, you know, hotel. We end up going from one uh, place, one end or motel to the other one. The other one, it wasn't as bad as the last one, but it was always drama. He was he was having a hard time, and um, we probably I had to go every week to make the payment because they didn't accept paying online, right? So, um, but it helped uh, he and I to develop a, you know, a relationship and a rapport. And um, we would talk, you know, and um, anyway, eventually he was like, I'm gonna go. He called me and said that he wanted to, could I drive him to uh, the bus station because he was going home to his children. This was 2020. When this happened, he called me last week, and he was like, I didn't even know if you was going to have the same number, but I just called you to say thank you, um, and thank you for the way that you uh, took care of me. He said it, sh it changed my life because I realized that I got grown kids, you know, where he was from, <laughs> you know, and if, you know, a stranger could, you know, care for me like this, if I wanted to, if I wanted to make it, right, not go back in jail, not get in trouble, not all this stuff. I need to reach out to my children. He said, now I have a job. I have a new baby, a new wife. I was like, I don't. No, I'm, just, <laughs> I'm still out here single. Like, <laughs> he was like, I have a new baby, a new wife, and my life has changed. And then he was like, I just want to give back, you know? So I sent him our link blmhtx.org. <laughs> um, but I sent him our link, and I was just so moved because it was so random. And um, yeah, like things like that, knowing that, you know, you're willing, and to, to be able to, I think sometimes be effective is um, just be adaptable and open to sort of what's needed in the moment. Um, but that, that is, yeah. Yeah, that was, that was incredible. Sorry, what was the link again? 
B-L-M-H-T-X dot org. (laughs) (laughs) So our time together is coming to an end. I, or in this moment, in this moment, I wanted to ask each of you, uh, during the pandemic, the Rothko Chapel celebrated 50 years. For, if you were to give closing words for the people here today, for collective liberation to be possible, which many of you spoke about at different moments today, what would you want the individuals here to do so 50 years from now, our world could look very different? Um, I would say learn more about abolition, practice it amongst your own family. And again, abolition is about trying to limit harm and also when there is harm, correcting those issues. Like it's basic. It's not, you know, we talk about, you know, defund the police, which is very necessary, not because because it's not working. We're spending billions of dollars on a police force when we have people with mental health issues that we can be hiring counselors, hiring therapists, training people. Like, like there's jobs that's needed, there's work that's needed. We live in a city of Houston that's either number one or number two in, ab- in uh, evictions. There is an eviction tsunami There is an eviction tsunami, meaning that people are getting booted out of their houses. What happens when people don't have a place to live? Does crime go up? Are they going to try to get something from you so they can survive? You know, it's hard to be stable. It's hard to find work if you don't have a place to lay your head. You know, you can't rest. I was, uh, there was a guy at the gas station the other day, and, um, and I, I'm generally not, like, I'm not scared of human beings. I'm not scared of people. I'm surely not scared of black people. <laughs> like, you know, when people standing outside or people, you can tell they're struggling a little bit. Like, I generally don't have no fear. None. And, uh, but don't bring your dog around me. <laughs> <'Cause> I'm, <laughs> what is going? Like, but, but, <laughs> but. <laughs> But, you know, he was like kind of, and I was like, what's going on? Because he didn't, you know, it wasn't a, a generally a normal reaction. He's like, nothing. I just don't have nowhere to be. I ain't got nowhere to go. I didn't, have, I didn't even have anything to tell him, right? I, I, I didn't even, at that time, didn't have nothing to give him, you know? So I just left with that on my mind. How many people don't have nowhere to be? I lived in a place where next door... There was a, just recently I moved, but there was a place where people who were unhoused, because it looked like a little gazebo, they would sleep to try to get peace. And then there were like four parking lot spaces in front of it, right? More and more I started seeing people who you could tell they used to live somewhere because they had their things in the car, right? So working people now are houseless, right? And, and, And where people live, Oftentimes, if you're working class people, you live in these apartments. They so strict, you can't bring people in your house like you wanted to. There's no parking spots, they'll tow your car. Like all these things that prevent us from caring for our people, right? Um, And if Houston does not acknowledge, if the folks who we so, we care about so much and 
yeah, that's our people, and we're so glad it's a very diverse government, but if the people that's going into these spaces do not make decisions that benefit our people, they say, well, what else, we can, what else can we do? They don't have no conviction around what's happening to our community, to the city. Like, how are we gonna ever change? Um, so so I, I, I would ask if we have something different, like we also, we also have to encourage and speak the truth to our people. They come around us dancing, great. I love Tzadiko too. But can you, when you go <laughs> in these offices making decisions, I love some of the things that you do. Can you make decisions that's gonna benefit our community, not smile in our face, dance with us, and then continue to increase the police budget? Like, we know what's happening with our schools. We know that they're taking over this, this, this you know, HISD. There's a history of TEA taking over the school system. They have not improved one thing. If y'all think this is about students, please think again. Look at the history. Look at the record. And the last thing I would say is trust people. Trust people people that you don't usually trust. A lot of times we trust people who have on the right suit, who speak the right language, who, you know, have, went places in, our, in, in their lives. And sometimes those people don't mean us no good, right? The, in the work that we do, Adrian Marie Brown right, uh, has a book that says, um, when we treat people with trust, they're trustworthy. What I found out in doing mutual aid for this amount of time and this amount of years is that when we sell people, so look, this is how much money we have, because we, I mean, um, unfortunately we do it just like people who have a limited amount of bills, right? You gotta figure out what to, that's the most ethical way for us to do our work. We have this amount this time, these are the needs of these people and this is what's going on. We invite them end to end, hey, what you need? We don't care about what it is. If these things are important to you, then they're important. We know that eviction is an emergency, right? But when we tell people, hey, um, and they'll tell us what we need, well, we, other ha we have other people that need such and such and such. Do you know people will say, well, I just need this. Well, I just need pe this. People are trustworthy. And the last thing I'm gonna say is oftentimes people do not trust black people. But when I tell you, the people that we, 90% of the people that we work with are black, right? Not because we're saying nobody else can't work with us, but because one, we started doing this work, doing Harvey when the communities were black and, and brown people in that community, like, it's like they forgot about us. So that's how this started, right? And, and, and it, it, it builds by word of mouth. So 90% of the people that we work with don't ask for everything that they need. So generally, if we have more, like, then we give more. Because we already know you just, you just asking for this. But we know you still need gas. We know you still need, you know, I can go on and on. But I'm saying this because I trust black people. Trust brown people. Sometimes people lie to you because you make them lie to you. You make them, you create systems and applications and, and, and things to, to, to where people don't forget. You don't know the community, you don't know the neighborhood, you don't know how people think, and you want them to fit this, and that doesn't work. So they have to lie to get what they need. But if you decide to be a little bit more adaptable and say, well, let me create a system based on what these people need.
And you decide if this person telling the truth, just believe them. And they'll begin to tell you the truth. There's always going to be one or two that's, you know, that's, that's light. But that's not going to kill your program. You know? So. I would say just listen. Like, genuinely, actively listen. Ask questions and then be open to hearing what people say. How is your heart? How is your spirit? What can we do to create the abolitionist world we dream of? And then just shut up and listen. Talk to your neighbors. Trust your elders. Trust the young people. And build that community that we need. Um, Yeah, there's a lot. And you can't take your money with you beyond the grave, right? It's not going to make you happy to live in a silo and cloister that close to your heart. So give it to people that it will make an impact. Yeah. Um, I think to create that future you're talking about, there's a lot of healing that has to happen, clearly. And uh, just thinking about last week in our workshop, um, where Tashima, her mom was incarcerated almost her entire life. And a lot of the women are in their 50s, 60s. And they've have, some, some of them, like the state has taken their children, you know, while they were incarcerated. And, and they no longer can even have relationships with them. And there's been a really incredibly powerful thing that's been happening in the workshop where Tashima, who's 22, is, is healing as she's hearing the other women in the group share about their connections to their family and, and kind of seeing them as almost surrogate moms while they are also seeing her as their family, their children. And there's a lot of, obviously those are unique situations, but that the kind of like deep listening, the challenging, heartbreaking, beautiful conversations that are happening in those circles, the kinds of restorative circles we all need to be part of, um, is where like that healing can actually happen. Um, and to Court's point, like listen, and outside there'll be a bunch of gorgeous posters that the women in our program made uh, that were literally used to free folks. Uh, take those posters, read them, put them up wherever you can. Uh, and April 20th, there'll be an- another gorgeous set available by them, help free people, and help spread their amazing work. It's interesting, I'm um, the same age as the chapel was established, so I'm 52, and I'm gonna say something to all of you that may seem counterintuitive, but when you think about what kind of world you want to have 50 years from now, I'm gonna ask you not to think about yourself because this isn't about you. I'm gonna ask you to allow your heart to be broken open by people, by the situations, by the circumstances we find ourselves in. Because when you allow your heart to be broken open, it will move you to action. And it's that broken open heart, not broken hearted, broken open, that will propel you to do what's next. 
I'm also going to ask you to, in order to create the world that works for everyone 50 years from now, I'm going to ask you to be willing to imagine the impossible and the improbable. And then I'm going to ask you to be comfortable with being uncomfortable and be comfortable with the unknowable. You see, the world that we want to create doesn't exist in the current paradigm. We can't even begin to conceive of it now. So we have to create a world that is almost a blank slate. We have to create the space where systems and people and love create something we can't even dream of right now. This requires grace. It requires forgiveness, it requires fortitude, and requires letting go. That's courageous work. So in order to create the world for 50 years from now, we must be resilient, courageous, and unattached to what we think we can do so that something greater can do it for us. Thank you. On behalf of the Rothko Chapel, I want to congratulate each of you and thank each of you so very much. Can we please give them one more round of applause? Please stand as able. reception waiting outside for all of you to continue to celebrate, to nourish, and to feel joy. For those of you who are part of the program, we're just going to take a quick picture if you could come up to the stage. But for everyone else, we'll see you outside. Thank you so much for coming. <laughs>